Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and in this episode we return to the 11th century in the Great War of Munster and Ulster. In this show we will see the struggle between the King of Munster, Morkath O'Brien, and his great rival, the King of Ulster, Donald MacLachlan, continue. A new edge of ruthlessness will creep into our story as Ireland moves into the 12th century. However, This show is not all bloodshed, gore and violence. At a gathering of church leaders in 1101, we will see what the church made of attitudes to sex in Gaelic Ireland. And before we finish, we will have seen the arrival of the first known Norman in Ireland, Gerald of Windsor. So, with all that ahead of us, let's begin. For kings in Gaelic Ireland, power and prestige was everything. And in 1090, Morkathach O'Brien, the King of Munster, was an utterly deflated man. Coming from a long line of powerful kings, which included his grandfather, Brian Baru, there was a great expectation on his shoulders. But now he seemed on the verge of losing all power and credibility. On the battlefield, he had suffered heavy defeats and he had failed to even defend his own territory which had been raided on numerous occasions in the previous two years. In an age where honour and pride in one's family were the standards by which everyone was judged, Mwakutuk was clearly letting the side down. This was obvious for all to see. Indeed, Mwakutuk suffered the daily humiliation and reminder of his failure when he looked on the burned-out shell of his family's fortress at Kinkora. It was at this fortress where the great kings of his family, Machamon, Brian Baru, his own father, Turlach, had lived and died. However, in 1090, the fort was burned out, having been destroyed by the king of Ulster, Donald MacLachlan, when Warkatuk was powerless to stop him. These were bad times indeed. Despite his attempts to maintain some degree of power, which saw Warkatuk bring the weakened kingdom of Leinster under his rule in 1089, Ultimately, there was no getting away from the fact 
that he was no match for Donald McLaughlin, the King of Ulster. In 1090, Murkduck's humiliation had been complete when he had no choice but to recognise Donald's overlordship. But from Murkduck, or indeed the people who lived in Munster, the fighting was by no means over. In some respects, it was just beginning. Murkduck, in his heart, could never accept the state of affairs that reigned after 1090, a power structure where he and his family were not at the top. While Donald McLaughlin effectively became High King in 1090 when he took submission from Warkatoch along with the kings of Meath and Connacht, he really had little interest in affairs outside of the north. He focused all his energy on controlling the rebellious minor kingdoms that surrounded him. In this situation, where Mwakatuk was just waiting for a chance to claw back some power, it was inevitable that all hell would break loose. And indeed, it didn't take long. By 1091, Mwakatuk was raiding the Kingdom of Meath, directly north of Leinster. But he wasn't the only one seeking to expand his power. And while he was on campaign in Meath, his own kingdom of Munster was raided by the Kingdom of Connacht. It must have seemed to the peasants suffering in these raids that this war would continue for generation after generation, with kings attacking each other in raid and counter-raid, with little ever changing. Indeed, for me, it's conflicts like this that smash the notion that daily life in the past was somehow nicer, easier or simpler. Far from it. Although we have no statistics for homicide rates in medieval Ireland, Comparative studies of tribal societies, which is what Gaelic Ireland ultimately was, would indicate that they were at least 30 to 40 times higher, perhaps even as high as 100 times higher than 21st century rates. Now that means that pretty much everyone in Gaelic Ireland knew someone close to them who had been murdered. The point of this is not to reduce life in the medieval world to one long story of death, but to acknowledge what the impact of these constant series of raids and counter-raids was. Despite the constant violence, things did change. Well, at least those doing the dying did change, and that could have huge consequences. The year 1092 saw the continuation of an age-old conflict between two rival families in the remote Kingdom of Connacht when the King of Connacht, Roy O'Connor, fell into the hands of his family's bitter rivals, the O'Flaherty's. And in the trademark brutality of the era, the O'Flaherty's horrifically blinded Rory, which, in effect, dethroned the man. Although the O'Connors hung on to power in the West, Connacht was thrown into turmoil, as it had been Roy O'Connor who had successfully held Morkatok O'Brien and his army of Munster at bay during the previous decades. When word got out that Rory O'Connor had been blinded and deposed, it was Murkatok O'Brien in Munster, eager for his chance to rise, who reacted first, when he swept into Connacht and took advantage of the chaos there. The campaign got off in the usual format, when Murkatok's army sailed up the River Shannon and plundered the monastery of Clonmacnoiz. But this was just a foretaste of what was to come. This was followed up by a full-ground invasion, Murkatuk easily mopped up opposition in the divided Connacht and then he set about taking vengeance for the numerous raids which had been launched from Connacht on Munster in the previous decade. 
Usually, in these situations, a victorious king like Murkertok would just take submission from a vanquished foe. However, in 1092, Murkertok cast centuries of military etiquette, Gaelic law and tradition aside. Instead of taking submission, he deposed the O'Connors entirely from their rule over Connacht. In their place, he now installed as kings of the province, the Ehedons, a minor family from South Connacht who had never ruled before. Effectively, nobodies. This was an incredible move in the medieval world, bringing in people who had no claim and making them kings. It would have shocked Gaelic Ireland to the core. Unsurprisingly, the O'Connors were unwilling to accept this new state of affairs, and in late 1092, as winter swept in, they began to challenge Murkertuk's new order in the west. Furious, Murkertuk could not react immediately, as the winter of that year was recorded in the annals of the Four Masters as great frost and ice in this year, and the lakes and rivers of Ireland were frozen over, so that men and horses were wont to pass with dry feet over the lakes, and great snow fell afterwards. Huddling around fires to stave off the bitter cold, people must have waited with trepidation for what 1093 would bring, and Murkertuk did not let anyone down. As the weather cleared, Murkertuk went on the offensive, attacking the lands of the O'Connors, and this time drove them from Connacht entirely. This action completely reorganised the power structure in the West. For Murkertuk, this clearly had the desired effect. He was now the most feared man across Ireland, and soon his long-time enemies were submitting to him, most notably the King of Meath, and then his brother Diarmid, who had opposed his rule from day one. Despite these great victories, Murkertuk could not yet rest on his laurels. In fact, his biggest challenge still lay ahead of him. In Ulster, his long-time enemy, Donald McLaughlin, would not submit so easily. He was an entirely different kettle of fish. Indeed, in many respects, Connacht was just a sideshow. Donal was the real enemy, and a major war was clearly on the cards. By 1093, Donald McLaughlin, the King of Ulster, had noticed the growth in Murkertuk's power, and he knew he had to act. But Donald, he was crafty, clever and strategic. He did not immediately go to war. Instead, he first built up an alliance with the other Ulster kings. The following year, all of Ireland must have trembled as this force took to the field, moving south out of Ulster into Meath, then Dublin, before striking southwest to Munster. As they moved, they added kings to their alliance. First, the King of Meath, who had submitted to Murkertuk out of fear in 1092, signed up, no doubt taking the chance for vengeance. They were also joined by another man, who was more than willing to join an alliance to bring Murkertuk O'Brien down. This was the Norse King of Dublin, Godfrey Crowan. Godfrey was descended from the Viking raiders of the 10th century and had muscled his way to power in Dublin from his base in the Isle of Man and wrenched the city free from Wakatuk's influence when Munster had been under attack from all sides in the 1080s. Godfrey, no doubt fearing retribution from Wakatuk, was eager to join Donal and for once and for all take the chance to put Wakatuk back in his place. From Dublin, this major army now moved southwest towards Munster. Like all medieval armies, 
They no doubt moved slowly, pillaging as they went, taking food from peasants and creating havoc. However, this force did not get very far. About 30 miles from Dublin, they were faced by Mwartuk and his army. He had heard of this force and knew he had to break them. There was no way around this. Donald's army had only one purpose. That was to destroy Mwartuk's rising power. In a pitched battle fought on the plain of Leinster, the alliance of Ulster, Mead and Dublin routed Mwartuk's army. Now the path into Munster lay clear. Destruction and pillage lay ahead. However, in an inexplicable move, Donal, after his great victory, retreated back into Ulster. Mwartuk must have been elated, relieved and stunned in equal measures. We don't know for certain what happened, but it seems most likely that some argument had followed the great victory and Donal was unsure of proceeding at the head of such a weakened and divided force. While Donal could retreat to the safety of Ulster, others were not so fortunate. And now fear gripped Dublin and Meath. They were vulnerable to attack without the protection of Donal's northern army. Mwakatuk saw his chance and his retribution would be fierce, swift and terrible. Despite their defeat to Donal, Mwakatuk's army was still able to take advantage of Dublin and Meath's vulnerability. Dublin was first on the chopping block. Arriving in the city, there was no opposition and Godfrey Crowan was deposed and banished. Having dealt with Godfrey, Mwakatuk now pushed north out of Dublin, where the people of Meath must have trembled with the army of Munster advancing down on them. Their fate would be far worse than that of Dublin or even Connacht in previous years. Arriving in Meath, Mwakatuk expelled the ruling Imwell Shocknell dynasty and then partitioned the once mighty home of the Southern O'Neills into two inconsequential kingdoms ruled by minor kings. The kingdom of Meath that had provided dozens of high kings was now utterly vanquished, dismembered and on its deathbed, so to speak. While the world of Gaelic Ireland suffered under the weight of war and man's inhumanity to man in 1094, the year 1095 brought a reminder of the cruelty that nature could deliver when a plague of epic proportions ripped through the population in Ireland. Little exact detail is known of this plague, but it was probably the worst since the plague of Justinian in the 540s and comparable to the Black Death in the 1340s. According to the annals of the Four Masters, one in four people died. Medieval medicine was completely unable to understand a complex illness like plague and the population were completely vulnerable. We have little idea of how exactly it impacted society. However, if the Black Death two and a half centuries later is anything to go by, we can expect that normal society would have temporarily collapsed. Lawlessness would have shot up and people's social inhibitions would have disappeared as they faced imminent death, enjoyed what they thought were their last few days on earth by indulging in hedonism. Unlike almost everything else in the medieval world, this plague did not recognise the rigid hierarchical class structure and among the thousands who succumbed was the exiled king of Dublin, Godfrey Crowan. Society as a whole, however, did survive this plague and Mwakatuk for one did not lose the head. Indeed, far from it. He appears to have been able to take advantage of it. As Ireland was littered by plague victims, 
Mwarkatuk initiated a new campaign to reaffirm his authority in Connacht. The O'Connors had returned to the province and were causing serious trouble. Leading an army and in the process no doubt spreading plague by having hundreds if not thousands of people traipsing across the country, Mwarkatuk invaded Connacht again, this time defeating and killing the heir of the O'Connors. On Midsummer's Day, that's June the 21st, Mwarkatuk established a semi-permanent encampment in the province where he would stay until September the 29th. During this campaign, he set about utterly annihilating the O'Connors. He again expelled the ruling dynasty from the province while also taking a huge number of hostages from the wider O'Connor clan. These would be executed if their relatives dared to go to war or challenge Mwarkatuk again. In this campaign, he also took a vast swathe of southern Connacht and ruled it directly himself. As he returned to Munster in late 1095, Mwarkatuk's rise in power had been impressive. But during these campaigns, he had still not really challenged the power of his great rival, Donal McLaughlin. In 1097, Mwarkatuk began his first attempt at conquering Ulster, a province that had been the graveyard of the careers of many aspiring kings. Despite the prospect of the oncoming war, 1097 must have been a year of great hope, not because of the activities of any king, but because of the prospect of a good harvest. Harvest, for the majority of the population, was the key event of the year. The peasantry had little interest in the wars of kings. They would not benefit no matter who won, but a good harvest ensured a year free from starvation and the disease that inevitably accompanied it. In years of good harvest, parents could look at children in the knowledge that they would survive the winter. Later in 1097, the good weather delivered a great harvest. As the annals of the four masters recorded, the crop of nuts gathered that year lasted for two full years. However, this festivity was tempered when Workatuk prepared for war against Donald McLaughlin and it seemed the major confrontation between the two had finally arrived. While famine would be absent, it now seemed many would die in war. It was Mwarkatuk who provoked this conflict, when he pushed north into eastern Ulster, arriving in what was unquestionably the weaker part of the province, the vassal kingdoms of Donald McLaughlin. However, he was also in the sphere of influence of the Abbot of Armagh. Aware of the destruction that would ensue if the two went to war, the abbot negotiated a peace between Donal and Mwarkatuk, staving off conflict for at least another year. However, everyone must have known that this peace could not last. While many expected war in 1098, the world of Gaelic Ireland was severely rattled by a completely unforeseen event, when an army turned up relatively out of the blue, led by the King of Norway. War between Mwarkatuk and Donal was now put on the back burner as people tried to get their head around the arrival of a man who across the North Sea travelled around the north coast of Scotland just to get to Ireland. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. The arrival of the King of Norway, a man called Magnus Berlegs, had its origins back in 1094, after Morkothoch had taken control of the city of Dublin. In the years after this, Morkothoch began to expand his influence into the Irish Sea. Realising they could not stand up to a man who had so brutally dealt with his enemies at home, the powerful aristocrats in the islands of the Irish Sea submitted to him. This expansion, however, brought Gaelic Ireland into conflict with others who had interests in the region, one of whom was the King of Norway. The islands in the Irish Sea were inhabited by the descendants of the Norse Vikings, who still maintained connections to their ancestors' homelands in Scandinavia, and Warkathok's expansion into the Irish Sea threatened these connections. When word filtered back, the King of Norway reacted to quell this threat. In 1098, Magnus Berlegs arrived in person at the head of a great fleet and was conquering all before him. Most people must have thought that this man was a ghost from the past, reminiscent of his Viking forefathers. The king was no ghost, however. He was a very real danger. Morkothok could not stop him, and the implications of Magnus seizing the region was immense, as Dublin was now vulnerable to attack. Indeed, the city's lucrative trade made it the most important centre anywhere in the Irish Sea region. Late in 1098, Ireland again quivered at the thought of an onslaught from Scandinavia. While two centuries earlier, this had taken the shape of minor raids. In 1098, things were very different. Magnus Berlegs was no mere raider like his Viking ancestors. As King of Norway, he had substantial resources and the conquest of Dublin was not beyond his capabilities. But then, in the same manner that he had arrived, relatively out of the blue... Magnus set sail for Norway again in 1099. While Gaelic Ireland, and in particular the inhabitants of Dublin, 
exhaled a collective sigh of relief. Magnus was by no means finished. He would return. Nonetheless, with Magnus off the scene temporarily at least, Mwarkathoch used this chance to turn his attentions back to Ulster and Donal. In 1099, Mwarkathoch pushed north again, but the Abbot of Armagh forced mediation between the two. But even religion could not hold these men apart forever. A year later, Mwarkathoch attacked Ulster, but this time it would be far in the west, away from Armagh and the conciliatory influence of the Abbot. While the 12th century would bring more change than possibly any other in Irish history due to the arrival of the Normans in 1169, its opening year showed very little sign of change. This year, 1100, Sam Wachethoch continued the age-old interdynastic disputes when he launched yet another campaign into Ulster. This time he attacked into the west of the province and far from the reach of the conciliatory influence of the Abbot of Armagh. This time there would be no mediation. The conflict that was ten years in the making had arrived. Mwarkathuk planned his invasion carefully. His land army would move north through the divided and broken kingdom of Connacht, crossing into Ulster over the Urn at Asserow. Meanwhile, his fleet would sail up the coast, landing in the heart of Donald McLaughlin's kingdom near the modern city of Derry at Inishowen, while a third prong would move from Leinster, attacking eastern Ulster, presumably entering the province through what is known as the Gap of the North in South Armagh. This, as an overall strategy, was risky, however. Attacking Ulster was, in many ways, more difficult than any other campaign Mwarkathuk had ever fought. Firstly, he had further to travel, but also crossing the River Urn at Asaro was notoriously difficult. Donal would ensure it was defended, and this meant that when Mwarkathuk's force tried to cross the river, they would have to endure a torrent of spears raining down on them as they waded through the river water. Meanwhile, splitting his forces into three prongs meant they could not stay in contact with each other given the huge distances between them. Should any of the armies fail, the others would not know. Such a fate had befallen Mwarkathuk's army when he had adopted a similar strategy when he invaded the Kingdom of Connacht. Nonetheless, Mwarkathuk got the show on the road when he led his force to Asaro. Like many before him, an army of the Canal Owen, the inhabitants of modern Donegal, stood in his way at Asaro. Surprisingly, he had not come up with any way of dealing with this problem, despite the fact it was obviously going to happen. However, he had learned from previous defeats and did not risk open battle and total annihilation. Instead, he withdrew. This, however, left the two other prongs of his army to push on, oblivious to this retreat. The fleet landed at Inishone, but before they could raise a sword, they were caught and trapped by Donald McLaughlin's son and routed. The only army to enjoy any success was the force that had come from Leinster. Although they were able to raid East Ulster, they were in no position to lead an all-out attack on Donald McLaughlin. The campaign of 1100 was clearly indecisive on both sides, and further conflict was on the horizon. From Workathuk, this was not good news as he now faced potentially two major foes in Donal in the north and Magnus Berlag should he return. But instead of trying to come to some arrangement with at least one of his enemies, he decided to push on and antagonise the most powerful man in northern Europe. That was Henry I, Lord of Donfran, Count of Bayeux, Duke of Normandy and King of England. 
1101, a Norman ship arrived in Munster, carrying an emissary, Gerald of Windsor, who was looking for an audience with Morkathok. The Normans had recently conquered Wales, and this Gerald was the steward of Pembroke. Arriving in Ireland, he was not representing the Norman king, Henry I, but instead another man called Arnulf de Montgomery, the lord of Pembroke. Montgomery, along with his brother, had risen in revolt against Henry I, and they had sent Gerald to Ireland, seeking military aid. Given that Morkathok at this stage could count among his enemies the most powerful man in Ireland, as well as the King of Norway, a clever decision would surely have been to send Gerald of Windsor's head to Henry I. Instead, he decided he would back the Montgomery brothers' revolt, and to bind the pact, he married off his daughter to Arnulf. No doubt having no say in the matter, Morkathok's daughter was shipped off to meet her new husband with the all-important army to fight in the de Montgomery brothers' revolt. For this woman, she was going to live in a strange country, to meet a husband she had never seen before, with whom she could not even speak the same language. It must have been a daunting prospect. Unsurprisingly, King Henry I of England was less than impressed with Workathuk's intervention in his kingdom, and soon he placed an embargo on all trade between the lucrative English ports and Ireland. This quickly had the desired effect, and according to the Norman chronicler William of Malmesbury, Murkathuk soon realised the folly of his action and withdrew his support. Arnulf and his brother were defeated, and according to some sources, Arnulf himself fled to Munster and lived out his days with his father-in-law. In one final twist in this story, when Arnulf de Montgomery lost his title Lord of Pembroke, this cleared the way for the rise of the later Earls of Pembroke, the Declares. Seventy years later, the Earl of Pembroke would be none other than Richard Declare, a man on a strongbow who would spearhead the Norman invasion of Ireland in 1169. Back in 1101, however, Morkathuk's intervention in England was just one incident in one of the most frantic years of activity we have yet covered. Next, we will turn to the church in medieval Ireland, which in 1101 began the process of reform that involved the thorny issue of trying to control sex in medieval Ireland. Europe, towards the end of the 11th century, saw a general rise in religious fervour. Not only was the First Crusade launched, incidentally an event Gaelic-Irish people participated in, according to the contemporary chronicler Guibert of Nogent, but it was also a great era of church reform. Beginning in the 1080s, This reform movement sought to expand papal power, free the church from petty politics in individual kingdoms and bring wider European society into line with the church teaching. The process of reform began in Ireland at a great meeting of church leaders called the Synod of Cashel in 1101. As was customary across Europe, these synods were overseen by a monarch and in a move that reflected his prestige, this task fell to Morkathoch. Under his stewardship, the Synod of Cashel issued several edicts. Some were pretty straightforward, seeking to extricate the church from the world of secular politics by banning attacks on the church during times of war and forbidding the levying of taxes on the church. The Synod also dealt with corruption in the church, specifically simony, which saw people sell church offices for profit, an offence which would plague the church through the medieval period. When they turned to the issue of sex, things got slightly more complicated. Then, as now, relationships among the clergy was a hot topic, 
While the church professed celibacy among the clergy, tabloid newspapers would have loved Gaelic Ireland because it was quite common for the clergy to have concubines. This reflected a wider attitude to sexual relationships in Gaelic Ireland, which is very different to what people often associate with Irish history. The Gaelic Irish appeared to have a comparatively lax attitude to sex and relationships. In Gaelic society, men could have a number of concubines as well as their wives. This was something acknowledged openly in society as opposed to a secret affair. In wider society, it's highly likely that sex was not a taboo subject or anything like it. As we've discussed in previous shows, there was no such thing as privacy as we understand it. No one had private rooms, so people must have had sex when other people were present. This created an attitude that was anathema to church teachings, and in several synods through the 12th century, the church began to attempt to bring these relationships into line with church teaching. Unsurprisingly, this was met with resistance among clerics and kings alike, who were not so keen to obey their church's teaching when they wanted to limit their sexual activity. While the Synod of Cashel discussed such salacious topics as the sex lives of clerics, Morkathuk still found time to pull off what was a great political coup. At the Synod, he gave the Rock of Cashel to the church, and it became one of the greatest religious sites in Ireland. Now, while that from a distance of 900 years, this may seem like the act of a pious king, Morkathuk, in this act, was dealing a severe blow to a potential rival. While Morkathuk's family, the O'Briens, had dominated Munster for over a century, they had displaced the O'Gonrocht kings, who had based themselves in Cashel for centuries before that. By handing this site to the church, Morkathuk was sweeping away centuries of legitimacy and tradition of his rival. No doubt pleased with himself as the synod drew to a close, despite playing the role of the pious monarch, Morkathuk nonetheless still found time to launch his greatest military campaign later in the year. Having been thwarted on his previous attempts to bring down his great rival, the King of Ulster, Donald MacLachlan, in 1101, Morkathuk assembled an army from every province in Ireland except Ulster. This force was designed to rid Morkathuk of his enemy once and for all. This time, he would not split his forces up. He appears to have learned from the previous defeats. Staying clear of the conciliatory power of the Abbot of Armagh, again he pushed up the west coast to the entry point into Ulster over the urn at Astero, where he had failed before. Whether he was opposed at Astero is not clear, but this time the traditional line of defence into Ulster did not hold. As the huge army poured into the province, Mwarkthach, who had only a few months earlier presided over a great church gathering, now unleashed an orgy of violence in the north. Despite the edicts of Cashel, churches were burned and settlements attacked. He first rampaged through the territory of the Canal Connell in modern Donegal, who had stopped him at Assaro the previous year. However, he reserved particular vengeance for when he crossed the foil into Donald MacLachlan's home territory of Tyrone. Years earlier, in 1088, Donald had annihilated Mwarkthach and ravaged his kingdom of Thomond, destroying his family fortress of Kincora, and now the time for vengeance had come. Mwarkthach sought out the famous O'Neill fortress of Greenon on Aelach, a site of great importance to the northern O'Neills for centuries, and razed it to the ground. But despite seeing his home territories destroyed and annihilated, Donald MacLachlan would not submit. While he had unquestionably beaten Donald, Morkathuk had not destroyed him, 
or even taken submission from the King of Ulster. Donal had unquestionably survived to fight another day, relatively intact. Nonetheless, Mwakathok must have looked forward to the following year's campaign, where he could truly look to ending all opposition in Ulster. However, in 1102, everything changed yet again. Since Mwakathok had resurrected his career after the defeats of the late 1080s, the one person who had successfully bested him was Magnus Barelegs. Now, in 1102, Magnus arrived back in the Irish Sea with a large fleet and army. His aim this time was not the islands in the Irish Sea region, but Dublin itself. Mwakathok now had a serious problem on his hands. Donna McLaughlin would have to wait. Tune in next time to see what happens next. Until then, Sloan. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 